Good evening and welcome to this edition of Taiwan This Week with me, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by Bob Cow, a frequent guest on the show and Taiwan law expert. Glad to be here. Chris Horton, a Taiwan-based writer for the New York Times, among other publications. Thanks for having me, Gavin. And Keith Menconi, who's sitting in the guest seat today for what is his final show. That is correct statement. Yes. Bye-bye. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm heading back to uh, my home country of the U.S., and uh, as such, work permits being what they are, uh, I can't uh, work everywhere that I'd like to be working. And so last week was my last week in the host seat, and this will likely be my last time in the show at all. And this week I'm going to be uh, just a, a lowly guest. I'm one of you now. Right, so in the show tonight, with Keith as a guest, we'll be looking at the death of award-winning filmmaker Chi Bo Lin, an extra legislative session during which the future of the government's plans for pension reform and a major infrastructure project are both on the line. And we'll also be discussing energy and Apple. But we're going to begin with Panama and the announcement this Tuesday morning Taiwan time that it was severing diplomatic ties with the island in favour of Beijing. Presidential Office Secretary-General Joseph Wu responded to Panama's decision by blasting China, describing the country's actions as a mistake that hurts the cross-strait status quo and pushes cross-strait ties from peace towards confrontation. The government has vowed to re-evaluate cross-strait ties in the wake of Panama's switching of diplomatic recognition, while Washington is calling on Taiwan and China to avoid increasing cross-strait tensions and work towards a resumption of dialogue. So, Bob, did Panama's move come as a huge surprise, and quite what action could the government take as it seeks to re-evaluate already strained cross-strait ties? Well, I think any, uh, Panama has been thinking about switching ties for probably about a decade, I think. Uh, about 10 years ago, they wanted to, but Beijing actually told them to hold off. Um, so this isn't really a surprise. Um, it was during, uh, last time was when my angel was the president, so China wanted, wanted to uh, foster a better relationship with Taiwan, so um, they told Panama to hold off, but uh, that we have Tsai Ing-wen in the presidential office, um, everything is fair game now. And what, what actions do you think the government could take as it seeks to reevaluate cross-strait ties in the wake of Panama? Well, I think uh, Taiwan needs to stop looking at uh, you know, just these numbers games. I think um, it's really not productive to try to you know, say that we have 20 uh, diplomatic, di- diplomatic allies and that doesn't really change anything between 20 and 21. I think you know, with the... Uh, Cross relations with China, um, I think Taiwan is really in a passive position. There's not much that Taiwan can do. Now, with the new southbound uh, policy, I mean, there's uh, obviously ways to look at uh, to, to place focus on other parts of the the region. But uh, we really need to stop looking at China as the primary uh, relationship. Right, Chris, you lived in China for a long time. I mean, what do you see from this? Well, um, yeah, I was in China for 13 years, and I, I saw I saw different approaches to Taiwan. Um, it what really strikes me about uh, this uh, the Panama switching uh, severing ties is uh, it, it feels like the U.S. has just been completely silent in its response. There hasn't been any sort of uh, there hasn't been any sort of even token kind of uh, gesture of support for Taiwan. And f- from what I've heard, uh, there's there's a lot of talk in Washington about perhaps a, a fourth communique being drawn up by Jared Kushner and, uh, of course, Henry Kissinger. So it's uh, I think it feels like uh, you know tenuous times right now for uh, for Taiwan and uh, 
like like Bob said, it's 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 in a it's in a fairly passive position. I also agree that there's really there's not a whole lot of point to having you know twenty or twenty one or even seventeen allies, uh, diplomatic allies. Our uh, Taiwan's best allies are tend to be uh, countries that they don't have official relations with. So I think uh, worrying about keeping whoever's remaining. I, I don't know if it really is in Taiwan's best interests. And of course, uh, 20 allies they have at the moment, like you said, most of them are in the Caribbean and the Pacific. There we go. With the, not many in Africa anymore, Keith. No, it's definitely dwindling. Uh, and we also saw a continuation of that spat uh, between Nigeria and Taiwan kind of pick up this week. We heard news that there were uh, five other countries that may ask uh, Taiwan's uh, uh, five unofficial uh, allies of Taiwan with just unofficial ties, uh, they may ask Taiwan to change the name of uh, whatever, you know, uh, trade office they have in those countries as well. Uh, And that's kind of what a lot of people are worried about, that uh, China might not just go after these official diplomatic allies, but uh, important countries that uh, Taiwan works with unofficially. Uh, and so this week, obviously earlier this year, we saw uh, Taiwan needing to move its trade office out of the capital, uh, Abuja, in Nigeria. I think it's moved to Lesotho now. Uh, this week, Nigeria kind of told Taiwan to hustle up and uh, said, you know, we can't guarantee the safety of uh, any of your officials in uh, our capital. Uh, and Taiwan responded in sort of a tit-for-tat way. Now it's asking uh, Nigeria to move its trade office out of Taipei. So... Uh, you know, it's it's one thing to go after these official ties. Uh, I think, as Chris said, they're not necessarily the most important ties in the world. A lot of them don't, I mean, none of them really secure any kind of uh, security guarantees for Taiwan. They don't help its security standing in the world. The, even the trade ties aren't necessarily that important. Uh, but if China can manage to make a significant impact on these official ties... Uh, beyond just, uh, you know, maybe the symbolic name changes. If it really can make a dent there, then uh, that might be more significant for Taiwan down the road. And, of course, all this, the crux of this issue is the adherence to the 1992 consensus, Bob. I mean, do you think if President Tsai Ing-wen decided to wake up tomorrow morning and go, all right, I'm going to adhere to it right now, do you think China would suddenly say, OK, your trade offices are safe? Well, that would be... uh quite extraordinary if that were to happen. I, I, I don't think that would... Well, first, Taiwan would never do that, but I even th- think even if she were to do that, uh, you know, China would just ask for more concessions. As I think we know from the uh, experience with Hong Kong, um, uh, it's... Uh, you know, the more you give, uh, the more they take. So, um, that's probably not the right course of action, and I don't think anyone in Taiwan... Um, well, I would say the vast majority of the people in Taiwan would probably not want uh, the country to go down that path. Right, of course, there's always talk about a domino effect when this happens, Chris. I mean, do you see over the next two or three years more countries with diplomatic ties with Taiwan severing them in favour of Beijing? Um, I do. Uh, I think I think Taiwan, uh, sorry, China, uh, you know, as Bob referred to earlier, you know, he uh, China told Panama to hold off previously. And China likes its timing, you know. Uh, I think... You know they 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 could probably get Nicaragua would would be one of the uh, the probably lower lower hanging fruits especially because uh, Daniel Ortega when he was president of Nicaragua in 1985 he switched uh, 
allegiances from or diplomatic rev, uh, recognition recognition from Taipei to Beijing. Um, it was reversed by uh, a, a former political opponent of his who who uh, succeeded him. Uh, but you know he's he's done it once, so you know it's 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 quite conceivable he'll do it again. Um, I I mean, oh, but just stepping back, it feels like. This is all part of uh, a steady drumbeat of like at least one big embarrassment uh, per month uh, for uh, for Taiwan and by extension uh, President Tsai that that Beijing's trying to inflict uh, over especially over the past ten months. Uh, you've got um, you've got the uh, International Civil Aviation Organization snub, you've got the Interpol snub, you've got the WHA snub, you've got Li Mingzhou's detention. Um, it's uh, you've got the uh, what is it the Kimberley process meeting in Perth. It's just uh, it just doesn't stop, and it's not going to. I, I don't think uh, Xi Jinping, his government, uh, you know they 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 will do everything they can. I, I think they look at the world, uh, you know, the, uh, according to the old adage, you know, when you when you have a, a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And uh, I think that they're just uh, they're just pounding away on Taiwan right now. Well, so Keith, I mean, this belligerent bullying by Beijing. Obviously, Beijing's thinking it's doing a great job, but I mean, the man on the street, the woman on the street here in Taiwan, is probably going to take a rather different view of that. Right. I mean, the, just picking out a word that uh, Chris used a second ago, embarrassment. I mean, I think. Maybe that's one way to frame what happened this week as being embarrassing for Taiwan. But obviously, Tsai Ing-wen and the other diplomatic officials in Taiwan would like it to be framed in a very different way. They'd like it to be framed uh, more, as uh, Gavin was putting it there, as uh, belligerent bullying and unnecessary bullying. And I think that they have a pretty good case that they can make. You know, it's something that we've talked about a lot on the show is Taiwan's international participation benefits not just Taiwan, but countries around the world. If you look at uh, health issues or if you look at issues of terrorism, having a country with a population the size of Australia outside of that global order, not participating, not contributing to you know information sharing and and uh, technical skills gathering and all of that uh, that's a that's a pretty big hole in the global network and if uh, Tsai Ing-wen can successfully uh, portray that as you know it being China's fault and China just following this course of action for political reasons and uh, cr- punching that hole in the global system for purely uh, political reasons uh, I think that that might be a case that uh, the global community might be open to and uh, might be very receptive to. I think uh, picking up with what what Keith was saying, I think uh, Taiwan can actually learn something from my angel in the sense that uh, what Taiwan can do is actually uh, unilaterally uh, try to. Uh, bind itself to more international conventions like ICCPR, which actually has gotten a lot of attention um, internationally, at least within the international law community. Uh, even though Taiwan's not part of the United Nations, um, the fact that it bound itself to the convention um, has um, has made uh, has raised the, the status of Taiwan. So I think that's one way uh, to actually um, uh, look at uh, one way to frame the international relations uh, that Taiwan can. Uh, uh, forge ahead instead of trying to uh, deal with uh, countries individually. Well, also, I mean, going back to an earlier point, I would say, uh, you know, all politics are local. And, uh, you know, for, for Taiwan to feel like it's behaving in a dignified manner, and it, it's it's preserving its dignity, that's fine for Taiwan. Uh, for the international community, it really only sees Taiwan, sadly, through a, a China lens still. Um, 
it's it's very difficult to uh, to to punch through that. I, I think obviously Tsai Ing-wen needs to uh, do whatever she can. I think uh, you know in with regard to what Bob said about uh, uh, legal covenants and, and things like that, I think that's that's definitely one one valid way. Another, they, I think public diplomacy. There there needs to be a, a more robust effort to to get that to get Taiwan first of all to get Taiwan's identity out to the rest of the world because it has kind of been disappeared uh, by Beijing, and then once people are, are familiar with where is Taiwan, you know. What is its capital? Oh, it's not. It's not Bangkok. You know things like that. Then you can then you can start to make more nuanced uh, cases for for this on this issue or that issue. But really, Taiwan's been disappeared, and it, it just needs to be it needs to become visible before it can start making any any sort of cases uh, with regard to individual issues. So I guess it's a case of watch this space when it comes to Taiwan's diplomatic ties for the couple of years that are coming with the remainder of the Tsai administration's first four years in office. And will there be another four years? Well, watch this space as well. But let's move on now. An acclaimed filmmaker, Chi Bo Lin, was killed this past weekend in a helicopter crash in Hualien County. Helicopter pilot Zhang Zhuguang and Chi's assistant, Chen Guangqi, also died in the accident. Chi was best known for his 2013 documentary, Beyond Beauty, Taiwan from Above, which along with featuring some stunning shots of Taiwan and its geography, also set out to educate people as to how damaged the island's environment has become. Asia Cement has come under fire following the helicopter accident and the company has become the target of a petition calling for an extension of its mining rights in the Taroko National Park to be ruled illegal. Chi used images of an area in the park that has been deforested due to mining activity by Asia Cement in his documentary. And the Ministry of Economic Affairs granted Asia Cement a 20-year extension on its mining permit on March the 14th. However, that extension was made without public knowledge. And Premier Lin Chuan this week said the Cabinet will review the legality of the Ministry of Economic Affairs' decision to extend mining rights to Asia Cement. And he also said that the Cabinet could ask the Control UN to launch an investigation into the matter. Now, Asia Cement on Wednesday of the... Thursday of this week, sorry, took out a front-page advertisement in several Chinese-language newspapers announcing that it planned to reduce its mining operations in Hualien County by 40%. And the company also said that it would agree to conduct an environmental impact assessment report on its mining operations if necessary. But it added there that would only be carried out once a proposed revision of the Mining Act passes the legislature. So more environmental woes for Taiwan, Keith. This time it's Asia Cement and all related to the death of a famed documentary maker. Yeah, it's actually a little bit interesting how this connection was uh, made to the death of uh, director uh, Chi. Apparently, he had taken photos of the mining site uh, aboard a, a whaling boat, and posthumously, those those photos and his comments about it uh, were, were posted online. And he was basically saying, you know, obviously, uh, that mining site is something that featured heavily in the movie itself. Uh, and uh, within the movie was kind of used as one of the many examples of the ways that uh, industrialization has led to the degradation of Taiwan's environment. And so in his comments about that, he was saying, wow, it's uh, it looks like they're mining even deeper than they were five years ago when the movie was made. And so it's kind of calling into question, to some extent, the degree to which, you know, we, we all celebrate the increased awareness that came as a result of that movie and uh, its ability to show Taiwan from a different angle, to make people think about 
about environmental issues in a slightly different way. But in practical terms, I mean, I, the the standoff between environmentalists uh, on the one hand and seemingly industry and uh, to a large extent the national government on the other, because the national government quite often si- is siding with uh, industrial interests, uh, that that basic standoff really hasn't changed at all in the last five years, uh, four or five years, uh, and so y- you know it's it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see you know what exactly it's going to take to create a broader movement on the same scale of the nuclear energy movement that is looking at these more boring, mundane you know impact assessment, support for impact assessment uh, type things, and 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 looking at just. Uh, the the daily grind of industrial production in Taiwan and how to make that you know more environmentally friendly. Right, I mean, Chris, Asia Cement was the target of this. There's a petition now by an environmental group calling for this mining rights to be changed, basically. And obviously, Asia Cement in trouble because of cheese documentary. Do you think more companies could find themselves in hot water as more pictures of? changed environments from the documentary's first release in 2013 to the newer version that Chi was working on are released when new pictures of Taiwan from above appear. Well, I obviously don't know what's going to be released, but if there's anything that implicates uh, any particular companies, especially in uh, high-profile you know, scenic areas like Taroko Gorge, uh, yeah, I, I could definitely see that happening. Uh, for me, just uh, on a Personally, like one of the first things I did when I came to Taiwan, I, I cycled uh, through Taroko Gorge, um, and I was I was struck instantly by I was I was kind of expecting, um, you know, I started off in Xincheng and I was expecting you know just green beauty from the get go, and there's the uh, the Asia Cement uh, uh, mine and factory, and and that's uh, you know it was I think uh, it was a bit it was a bit deflating, but also you know. We need we need things. the The modern world runs on things that we take from the ground. So it's uh, it's it's easy to uh, awful lot of cement in the area that we're in right now, Xinjiang. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so it's you know it's easy it's easy to uh, tut tut companies uh, or the government. But what we really need is uh, perhaps more more of a just sustainable model of of development in general, which obviously uh, is is a much bigger project uh, and endeavor, but. Uh, probably one that everyone should consider and for Taiwan a place of uh, limited size and resources you know it's it's an opportunity and perhaps even for companies like oh, I'm sorry is, is it Far East Group are they the parent company yeah yeah so you know you know they they're taking flack here you know there there is an opportunity perhaps for them to uh develop more sustainable ways of of building the Taiwan of the future that could then potentially be exported to other countries but uh you know these these things take a lot of uh, investment and um, political capital as well. Right, Bob. I mean, what do you think Asia Cement can do? Obviously, the chairman of Asia Cement came out this week and said it's okay we're digging deeper because we plan to use the deeper holes for fish ponds. That comment obviously got ridiculed by just about everybody. Well, fish ponds are nice. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a especially with mood lighting if it's underground. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yes, I think. Uh, I, I, I don't. I'm not a scientist. Obviously, I have no idea whether that makes sense. Uh, sounds, you know, it's plausible. But I think uh, I, I think it's actually uh, the fact that uh, uh, you know Asia Cement took out the, the front page ad uh, voluntarily reducing 
the the area that that they're going to mine in, and you know, whether they actually follow through is another matter. But I think um, that at least shows that the online petition um, has some effect. Um, I think uh, in Taiwan, the last few years, especially after Sunflower, you know, every, every time someone is pissed at something, people are on the streets, um, and it you know it gets tiring. You know, every every issue, there's people protesting, and it's not as uh, it's not as effective when. Um, uh, you know, it's it's every little thing. Uh, you know, obviously people have the right to protest and uh, 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 you know, speak their opinions, but um, it seems like uh, people are kind of getting tired of, of these uh, um, public demonstrations, especially the same-sex marriage uh, debate and all that. But I, uh, the fact that Asia Semen actually uh, listened or, you know, the, um, pretended to listen or, you know, wh- however you want to um, – uh, characterize it. Uh, I think it's a it's a good positive development. Right, I mean, Keith, a, a good PR move. Obviously, the newspaper advertisement. But do you think Asia Cement was more concerned about public opinion or about the threat that they could be taken to the control when for investigation? Probably well, a little bit of both. Perhaps a little bit of both. There are some environmentalists that are pointing out that forty uh, percent sounds like a good number, but it's uh, still to be seen exactly what part of their mining operations they're going to move. Because there are parts of it that are more environmentally sensitive than others. There are parts of it that will be more impactful than others. So not necessarily as big of a move as the numbers would suggest. I think it's also worth pointing out that the ask that environmentalists have is a little bit more limited than this conversation may suggest. I mean, what we're talking about is uh, an environmental impact assessment before this country gets, or excuse me, before this company gets the rights to continue mining for 20 years. Uh, and currently there has been no impact, environmental impact assessment. So we're not talking about shutting the mine down. We're talking about, you know, before they get the right to continuously mine for another 20 years, putting some effort into figuring out what kind of impact that's going to have. And so the fact that this seemingly, I mean, you know, I'm not privy to the process exactly how it happened, but seemingly was a decision that was rushed through quite quickly to get them uh, approved uh, and, and circumvent that impact assessment process makes it look like folks feel like, you know, if if such an assessment was done, then it would have come back with pretty negative results. And so, you know, that's that's something to worry about. And if if right now the only ask is, hey, let's find out what actual impact is is going to have, that seems like a reasonable request on the part of environmentalists. Of course, they were given the 20-year extension on March the 14th by the Ministry of Economic Affairs. And of course, nobody knew about that. They kept that hush-hush, Chris. Oh, the yes. Green Party, one could say, is not so green after all. <laughs> and and they're, they're subject to the uh, Control UN investigation, right? The MO. It's the Ministry of uh, Economic Affairs right. will be the target of the Control UN investigation. Right. Um, yeah, that's um, – you know, I, I don't know how much uh, public opinion can influence uh, Control UN investigations. Uh, it, it, does, it does seem, uh, as, as Keith just noted, a bit uh, – just the whole – Doing things not fully transparently, uh, yeah, that it does suggest that maybe uh, maybe things could have been done a little a little cleaner. But uh, what what for me, I, I think the fact that there's never been an uh, environmental impact uh, assessment, uh, and and they're talking about, you know, we're, we're well, and Asia Cement is talking about doing it if if it's necessary. I mean, I, I 
I I don't understand how it how it wouldn't be necessary. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just uh, you know I'm I'm fairly new here. I don't know how how these things work. But it no, seems... no, this, this environment can't be impacted. It's uh, a <laughs> it's a resilient environment. Well, it it, it seems it seems uh, yeah, it seems like these things should be mandatory, but. Uh, I, I don't know who who would be uh, the one to mandate such, such things. Well, well, Perhaps apparently, apparently, and you know, this is all sort of circumstantial. But apparently, the, this was rushed through shortly after a proposal to make it mandatory to uh, force uh, mining operations to get an environmental uh, impact assessment before uh, renewing licenses or before extending. Right. So it seems like this was a response to new legislation right. making those requirements. Seems that way. Seems that way, but as you said, very uh, non-transparent. The timing suggests. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Right, and we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back with Taiwan This Week after these important announcements. Welcome back, and we're going to kick off the second part of the show with an extra session, an extra legislative session, that is, and one that began Wednesday afternoon. The government is seeking to pass bills related to its contentious pension reforms proposals and its forward-looking infrastructure development programme during the session. Both bills have met with strong opposition from KMT lawmakers, while the government has simply described them as being of high priority. The pension reform bill has seen retired public sector workers take to the streets of Taipei in protest several times, most recently on Thursday of this week, when several thousand braved torrid wet weather to voice their dissent. The infrastructure bill, meanwhile, is seeing its main opposition coming from the KMT, which is looking to slash its proposed 882 billion NT budget and for a full review of its contents. But it's now also being questioned by the DPP itself, with several party members and traditional supporters calling for it to be revised, and also for President Tsai Ing-wen and Premier Lin Chuan to respond to concerns which have been sparked by the bill. So, the extra legislative session, Bob, is it high noon for the pension reform bill and the infrastructure bill? I don't understand if uh, you know if these bills are so important. Why weren't they? Uh, you know, why weren't they discussed in the regular sessions? Why are we having these extraordinary sessions? Um, it seems like uh, you know, Tsai when when she wants to get something done, she doesn't really care about public, public consensus and. Uh, she wants to push this through. Um, I think uh, the the goal is to push them through during this extra session. Um, you know, it's it's there's there's so much controversy. There's so many disagreements. Uh, you know, people aren't necessarily against the reform, but people are not sure what the actual uh, proposals are, uh, the amendments are, and um, there hasn't really been any public hearings like we have for some other uh, controversial cases. Again, like the same-sex marriage discussion, there were a bunch of uh, public hearings and. I think it's important to slow down and actually um, get some public opinion. You know, it, whether they're listened to or not, it's, it's a separate question. But at least get people on board and at least uh, get people to know what the actual disagreements are, what the actual proposals are, because I'm, I'm sure there's different proposals. And uh, to, to get people on the same page and actually have some kind of public consensus, uh, and if, if not, uh, at least some kind of public understanding, um, or, or else it's going to be another uh, another uh, case of um, like the labor reform that uh, when Tai uh, pushed it through with the DPP caucus, um, you know I think it's died down. People are accepting it, but uh, that was pretty controversial, and that didn't have to go that way either. 
Right, obviously the infrastructure proposal was put to the test when, of course, the plum rain started. When was it? About a week and a half ago? About a week and I've a half I've given ago. up. It's been yeah. raining every day for the past week and a half. As and long just, as we can remember. Yeah. Anyway, Chris, so do you think, obviously, water management, floods, infrastructure programme, flood management being part of it, do you think this has heightened government's concern that the bill won't pass, or do you think it, the government's concerned about the whole bill as a package? Of course, half of the bill's 882 billion NT is going to be spent on railway systems. Another questionable matter: Does Taiwan need more railway systems? Obviously, flood prevention good. Railway systems somewhat questionable. Um, well, I don't, I don't know where the railways are actually going, uh, so that's I I I can't really say. Uh my opinion on 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 the rail lines themselves, uh, in terms of water management, uh, not also not my area of expertise. But uh, <laughs> it, it it does seem like uh, I mean, there, correct me if I'm wrong. Does Taiwan have trouble with droughts from time to time? Uh, occasionally, we don't yeah, talk right. about them because if we talk about a drought, it will stop raining and there'll be a drought. <laughs> it's one or the other. It's one or the other. I, I, I prefer the flooding over the droughting, but uh, it's just my personal right. preference. It, it does it does it does feel like a place that where, where there's this much precipitation. Uh, you know, it it should be it shouldn't have droughts. But I'm not a a civil engineer or, or a scientist. Uh, I'm I'm a mere journalist. Mm. And of course, one of the rail tracks was actually the Taipei Taipei to Ilan Railway, mm. which of course caused a bit of controversy because it was going to go through some rather um, it was going to go through some geological landforms that were somewhat questionable whether you could put a railway line there through there, Keith. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, on the other hand, though. Uh, we, uh, whenever there is significant rain, uh, it, it does mess up the, as, as we saw recently, it does mess up uh, the normal road traffic over there. So if there was um, a more consistent and stable way to get to Elon, that would be quite a lot better. I think I think the reason why we may be struggling a little bit with this conversation in terms of its vagueness is that it, it is still a fairly vague proposal. And we actually did have a number of former officials and academics uh, come out earlier this week and say, you know, this this bill needs more clarity. They pointed to uh, a, a really significant part of the project, you know, like a, a multi-billion dollar rail project that only had a couple of lines dedicated to it, like a, a half a page or so. And, you know, they're saying if this is such an important bill, like, you know, kind of echoing what Bob was saying ago, a second ago, if this is such an important bill and if this is something that's really going to impact Taiwan's future, why isn't there more clarity? Why isn't there more detail into exactly uh, what this is going to look like? And so in a lot of ways, Tsai has really left herself open to that sort of criticism. Uh, I mean, the flip side of that is, you know, these these projects get fleshed out as the, as they're developed, and you know, you you, you want to get through the legislative process as quickly as as possible, especially in Taiwan, where obstructionism is kind of the the go to tactic of any party that wants to make the ruling party look bad. So you can understand why Tsai would want to ram this stuff through as, as quickly as possible. But uh, from a, a policy perspective, I mean, she certainly has left herself open uh, to this set of criticism. Right. And pension reform, Bob. I mean, do you think these, the pension reform protesters are a popular bunch of protesters, to coin a That's phrase? a leading question. That's quite a leading question. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's understandable why they're protesting. I think they were, they were, they were promised one thing when they, uh, you know, when they became teachers or soldiers and, and, and whatnot, um, and now it's getting, getting changed. I think it's understandable that uh, they're pissed, um, but I think they all, these people also understand that uh, some reform needs to happen or else the country's going to go bankrupt. I think the most important thing is to just get some kind of dialogue and some kind of 
um, compromised. Uh, you know, it's some people may think that uh, the pensions are too high or the benefits are too uh, too good right now. Um, but it's um, but it's it's created a uh, you know there's a lot of opposition. There's a lot. There's not 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 a lot of dialogue. So. Um, no, I think it's, it's it's time to talk. Right, and of course there might not be much dialogue. There might be plenty of dialogue, loud dialogue, but there probably won't be. But there probably won't be much concession going on in this extra legislative session when it comes to these two bills. Of course, the KMT will probably continue to filibuster them, but we will see. Anyway, let's stay with policies that make Taiwan tick. And there was heightened awareness about the need for stable power supplies this week before the. Rather wet plum rains kicked in, which I don't want to talk about because they're continuing. It looked like summer for a second. It's good. It only takes one fall to say it looks like summer, and the rain's barred again, exactly. don't they? So, stum. <laughs> exactly. Shut up. Right. Anyway, Thai Power said that electricity consumption on Monday of this week was at its highest peak of the year, triggering a low reserve warning as daytime highs surged to above 35 degrees in some parts of the island and electricity consumption hit its second highest level this year on Tuesday due to soaring temperatures once again. Of course, that sparked concerns about power supplies and also happened to coincide with a statement by the Cabinet in which it reiterated plans to phase out the use of nuclear power by 2020. 25. And ironically enough here, that statement came as the Atomic Energy Council approved the resumption of operations at the number two reactor at the third nuclear power plant, and that happened only days after the number one reactor at the second nuclear power plant resumed operations. Both had been shut down for annual maintenance work. So we've discussed this before, but is the government digging a hole for itself by on one hand saying it plans to phase out nuclear power, while on the other having to admit that, well, the island clearly lacks the ability not to rely on nuclear power, Bob. That's a conundrum. Um, <laughs> I think I, uh, I, I, I might get skewer for this, but uh, I don't know. Um, I'm not. I'm not 100 anti-nuclear. Um, I think there's a, a, a huge contingent of those people here in Taiwan right now, especially among the, the young people. Um, and I think it's important. I think that's a. I think that's a laudable goal. Um, but I don't think that's some. That's. Uh, uh, it's it's not uh, all or nothing. So I think uh, you know a plan to to phase it, to phase it out is is fine. But um, but I guess the the question is what's the alternative? I think with the the plan that was released, I think uh, by twenty twenty five, thirty percent of the energy is supposed to come from coal. I mean, is that a better option in terms of the uh, for the environment? Um, and I, I think uh, you know I, I think everyone will agree that it's probably not so good for the environment to be relying so much on coal. So I think. Uh, it's fine to have a to have a policy decision to to uh, phase out nuclear energy, but there's also um, we need to you know uh, we also need to understand uh, the the safety of, of nuclear energy. I think um, it, it the the danger has been exaggerated. Uh, I think on a theoretical level. Um, now, practically, maybe some of the equipment here in Taiwan is uh, in very poor condition, so it might be very dangerous, but. I think it's it's uh, it needs there needs to be a, a specific uh, a balancing test really to see you know is the risk worth it and you know that's not something that people want to hear. So Chris, if you had to move house, where would you sooner live? Next to a coal plant or next to a nuclear power plant? And which one would you rely on to that's turn a good your question. life? Oh, definitely that's a nuclear. Good question. <laughs> yeah, definitely nuclear. Um, yeah, coal plants. Uh, well, you know, I lived. Uh, I lived near a coal-burning facility in Zhengzhou, China, in 2000 when I when I had a, a scholarship to study at Zhengzhou University, 
and I ended up moving to Shanghai for the clean air uh, because <laughs> I was my, basically I woke up every day my last two weeks in Zhengzhou uh, when when the winter hit and everybody and and their mother were burning coal. Um, it was uh, I I I was waking up uh, vomiting blood. Uh, every morning, and I, I, I had another semester of my uh, scholarship, but I just abandoned it because it's not worth it, you know. And uh, coal is a nasty, nasty substance, and you know this this global warming thing, this climate change thing that uh, some countries are concerned about and others are ignoring. Uh, um, not going to name names. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, there, uh, you know, it's coal is is uh, it's it's a major culprit, you know. It, uh, China, you just just look at China. I, I think it still gets about uh, seventy seventy five percent of its energy from uh, electric power from coal, and I, you know that's just again it's it's unsustainable. Uh, I'm I'm definitely uh, in Bob's camp here. Like uh, you know, I think nuclear has a bad rap. Um, obviously, when things go wrong with nuclear, it's a little more you know attention grabbing, scary. Yes, you know what happened at Fukushima was uh, was it was a disaster. But it was a disaster that also, you know, had been kind of foreseen. The the, the walls uh, on the coast could have been higher, uh, but they weren't built uh, higher than they were because uh, officials were were scared. Uh, they were concerned about scaring locals. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, nuclear can be a. I think nuclear is a. a a, a real option. It needs to be, um, you know, it needs to be discussed. Uh, it needs to be approached sensibly, um, and I, I think it needs to be compared, you know, in terms of the overall uh, impact on public health and uh, climate change. I, I, if you present, if you present things logically and reasonably without uh, emotion or uh, sensationalism, I think uh, a lot of people will will uh, see the light when so it comes to that. If we had to put odds. Not that we're promoting gambling, but if we had to put odds on the government actually going through with its policy of making Taiwan nuclear-free by 2025, what odds would you be giving there, there, Keith? Well, I'm not going to give odds because, I mean, you say the government. What government are we talking about? Uh, Tsai cleverly put the date after, you know, the last possible year that she could even be in office, even if she did serve her full second term uh, that she may or may not get. Change the constitution. Okay, yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. That's that, one that, way to stick to a promise. That would mean another special legislative session. Exactly, and we don't want that, so I don't support that at all. So, I mean, you know, it's really a situation where there is not going to be any accountability, whether at least not for the Tide administration, uh, whether or not this is a policy that is adhered to. Uh, it's worth pointing out, though, that when the government says turning on these nuclear reactors... Uh, is consistent with our policy to get rid of nuclear, they're not wrong. I mean, you can still turn on these reactors after short maintenance and after doing the things that you need to do to make sure that they run safely. You can still turn those back on to maintain the power supply from nuclear plants in the short run and then turn them off later. So they're not, that's, that, that's not a false statement. Um, I think the issue really here is that there is a, a confidence, uh, there, there's a crisis in confidence, and this is something that Tsai has certainly inherited from past administrations, but there really just is absolutely no trust that the government is going to carry out uh, its policies that it says it's going to carry out with regard to nuclear and, uh, you know, to be fair, a lot of other policy areas as well. So, 
you know what uh, the other what you know what Bob and what Chris are talking about you know that this needs to be approached sensibly this needs to be approached scientifically that's all true uh, but given the fact that there is absolutely no trust of uh, any administration, it seems, on the nuclear issue, that's going to be a really, really difficult thing uh, to pull off. And uh, if if there's one thing that I think that the Tsai administration should be striving to do, it is, you know, regaining the trust of the public on, on this set of issues. Uh, and, you know, as we were talking about in the last subject, I think that lack of transparency that we see in the handling of certain issues is really not doing anything to help. Well, there we go. We want to live near a nuclear plant, but it's not good, but it's better than coal, is how we walked away from that one. And it's what government is going to get rid of nuclear power by 2025? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to wait point, and see. Keith. We'll have to wait and see on that one, won't we? <laughs> Might be the PRC government. Someone had to say that as well, didn't they? It's like mentioning the rain. Don't mention Yikes. it's going to rain, it'll rain. Yikes. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Yeah, don't jinx it, Bob. <laughs> don't jinx it. Right, and before we go, Apple fanboys and girls have been celebrating here in Taiwan this week after the US tech giant announced plans for the island's first actual Apple retail store. As you can see, we don't use Apple, obviously, in the studio here, and none of our guests appear to be using Apple because none of them screamed there. HTC, baby. Blackberry. Eh? That got even less of a comment, didn't it? <laughs> anyway, the company made an announcement on its Taiwan website earlier this week with Tim Cook also teasing the new location in a tweet calling the store Apple Taipei 101. Now, Apple's Taiwan retail store will be located in the Shinny district and, in fact, on the first and basement levels of the Taipei 101 sky- skyscraper. It's not, however, yet known when the store will open, although reports have claimed it could be by the end of the month. But for the meantime, Apple gadget-minded folks have been been seeking out the paper cutting of a huge tree by artist <laughs> Young Sure E, which is currently adorning the front of the soon-to-be-opened Apple store. It's a very different feel for I love Apple this. Store. A- Apple says that the paper cut shows the company's welcome to people in Taiwan to the new store. There we go. That, that was a statement about the, the, the paper cut. Anyway, of course, Apple products are a major player for the island's economy, with some of the Taiwan's leading tech companies involved in their production, big time. And Apple, believe it or not, regularly tops the rankings as the largest smartphone vendor here in Taiwan in terms of sales volume, sales value, and also sales of single models. So, Bob, do you think Taiwan deserved an Apple store long before this Apple store will open? I'm not an Apple user. Uh, this clearly doesn't excite me. But I think... Um, you can hear in your voice. <laughs> you know, I think if this makes people happy, sure, why not? Uh, you know, there's... there's I, I know there's, you know, there's, there's Apple res- uh, authorized resellers before in Taiwan already. I think... I don't think... I, and it might be easier for people to get uh, repairs and things like that. But, you know, maybe there's... You know, we'll have more, we'll have more lines and um, when the new iPhones come out and, you know, we'll be outside Taipei 101 or have a... You know, look, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's what they wanted. The new lines when the Apple gadget comes out with the Taipei 101 in the background for all the photogs for the news agencies that have to take these ridiculous photos. Hey, they're keeping us in business. There you there go. go. Chris, Apple user? I use a Mac, yeah. But I, I, my phone is HTC. But will you be rushing to the new <laughs> Apple store to check out the new Macs? Um, no, I, I don't get paid enough to, uh, <laughs> to do that kind of stuff. Um, you know, if uh, I'm kind of in the same camp as Bob uh, on this. If it makes people happy, great. You know, I, I used to uh, 
when I lived in Hong Kong, I would walk by uh, IF, uh, IFC every day on my way to work, and you know, you, you invariably see people taking photos of the Apple Store. And if it uh, enhances people, you know, v- tourists from China or from wherever else, if it enhances their uh, their feeling that uh, Taipei is a cosmopolitan international city, you know, modern metropolis. I don't really see any harm in it. Um, I do wonder if I, I mean it, it. It is. It is kind of. Uh, it does seem a little surprising that Taiwan doesn't have one yet. Uh, I I would guess that maybe they wanted to. Uh, that maybe Apple was wanting to play the mainland and Hong Kong first, and and then once they've had en- enough uh, stores there uh, set up here, who knows? Um, but yeah, uh, if if it makes Taiwan, if it makes Taipei look better, and people like it. Great. Will you be no? Keith won't be rushing to the Apple Store. Keith has a free HTC phone. Well, not not quite free because I, I lost the first one, so I had to pay full price for this one right here. Which uh, so I guess I shouldn't have admitted that on air. That doesn't make me look too good. But I mean, I, probably the thing to keep in mind is the Apple Store itself. We don't we don't want to inflate the uh, significance of this thing. Apple stores are essentially giant uh, ads for Apple. Uh, they're essentially a, a marketing campaign, and, and the idea is to build the brand, uh, to bring people in and get them excited about uh, the new products and all that. And, you know, from the perspective of consumers in Taiwan, uh, Apple already is the number one seller of uh, phones. They, I, This just statistic that I saw is that they control something like 20% of uh, the smartphone market. And so if this bumps them up to 30%, you know, that's not necessarily something to be super excited about from a consumer perspective. You know, you want diversity in the market and you want the local brands to have a shot too. But uh, as everybody else said, if uh, if people enjoy spending their Saturday afternoons at uh, the Apple Store, which apparently is going to be two stories, and as, uh, as Gavin said, it's going to have some nice cut red paper uh, on the walls everywhere. If that's how you want to spend your Saturday, who am I to dump on that? In, in, enjoy your Saturdays, guys. Apparently, they also have a genius section in Apple stores. It's Yeah, certified genius. Their own geniuses. Uh, none of Nobody in this room, of course, knew anything about that, which just shows what geniuses we are when it comes to Apple. Yeah, the fact that we didn't get an invitation, <laughs> maybe we would have given you better coverage... Had we gotten a an invitation Whoa. to your genius store, <laughs> is that is that not journalistic ethics? I guess that's not very ethical, is it? Um, we I, shouldn't hold people ransom for good coverage. I apologize. <laughs> I, I didn't mean it. I was just kidding. It was a joke. <laughs> yes, we're not endorsing Apple products nor knocking Apple products. It would have been a better joke had I been a genius, mm. but I'm not. Anyway, that was this week's Taiwan. This week, well, I was joined in the studio by Bob Cow. Chris Horton. Great to be here. And making his final appearance in the studio here in New Taipei, Keith, what do you want to be? You want to be Maverick? Menconi? I can live with Menconi. All right, all right, okay. Menconi's been serving me well. So I'd simply Keith Menconi then? That's, that's the way to Not do it. Not the Iceman Menconi. <laughs> uh, I don't think you get to choose your own nickname. Uh, so I guess we'll just go with uh, Keith Mancona, yeah. Good to be here. Right, and don't forget, you can listen to this on the podcast. On, on the, In fact, Apple, you can go to iTunes if you have your Apple from the Apple Store and listen to the podcast of this broadcast. Unless iTunes has kicked us off after that segment. Possibly, yes. <laughs> or you can listen to it on, of course, Android Podcast. And of course, we'll be back at the same time next week here on ICRT. And I'll be here as well, Gavin Phipps. Gavin Phipps.